Sounds and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, Zara here. For this episode, Afak Ali, better known as Zirar, and I are joined by Salim Barwani and Maria Lohia. Maria is a freelance photographer and filmmaker based in London. Her Hajj photography is incredible, and she's on Instagram as Just Me Breathing. If you listen regularly, you'll already be familiar with Salim as the author of the Explore Your Bounty travel blog. In this episode, our guests share their Hajj experiences with us. We talk about whether or not pilgrims should be taking photos during Hajj, as well as the history of photography within the Haram al-Sharif. Lastly, we talk about pilgrim travel accounts from the past. Recently, Salim wrote an article for Sacred Footsteps talking about his own Hajj. And this conversation has kind of come on the back of that. So Salim, could you just summarize for our listeners what your article's about? And I'll also put a link in the show notes too, so people can read it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the article I, I wrote um, was effectively to sum up my experience of Hajj. Um, I, I, I went when I was about 18 with my mum uh, in 2005. And I recall at the time, that um, I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't done much planning or reading or research. It kind of the opportunity came up, and it was one of those things where I just couldn't say no. Obviously, you, you would never say that. Um, so, but when I got there, you know, then I was exposed to a lot of literature and, and having conversations with people, and then carrying out the actual rituals. It then it kind of dawned on me um, the kind of deeper meaning and the spirituality associated with with the actual Hajj rites. So, I, I guess my purpose of writing article was to I guess, share and, and hope that by people that are intending to, to go, they could read that account and um, get a kind of flavor of, of, uh, of the spiritual dimension to the rituals that you undertake. Because I think a lot of the time the focus is on the Hajj rites and the obligatory action rather than looking at the deeper essence of the, of the ritual itself. Yeah, I think your article definitely did that. Um, and then kind of after that, we... Um, we did an Insta story asking people their opinions about, you know, whether or not their Hajj was a life-changing experience, which is what you kind of said that yours was. And I'll read some of the responses in a minute. But Maria, I just want to bring you in as well. What year did you do your Hajj in? Um, I did my Hajj two years ago now, actually, in two, two, 2017, sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it kind of happened like a bit similar. Like it wasn't really something that I had planned for or prepared for. I was... Um, how old was I at the time? I think I was, I think I turned 23 just before uh, we left, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, it happened quite suddenly, but it was it was a really good opportunity. I went with my brother and uh, two siblings as well. Um, yeah. So you've both done Hajj at a relatively young age, I would say. Um, and that's, I guess that's one of those things you're kind of advised to do anyway, because of the physical demands of Hajj. Um, but, you know, I just wondered, having having done it at a young age, is that something you would still recommend to people? Or do you perhaps feel that, um, you know, it's something you should do maybe later in life once you have, you know, a greater understanding of your faith or um, you're just kind of generally stronger in your iman? 
Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly um, what I was met with when I mentioned that to a lot of people at the time. And, you know, everyone was like, oh, yeah, that's really good. First, first, everyone will obviously commend it. They'll say, look, that's really good that you're going, you know, but then they'll say, but look, for me personally, I'm not ready or I want to wait till I'm, you know, married or I'm in a place where I can go. And and I mean, when I, when I think about that, I, I not, not, not to not disrespect to anyone else's view or anything, but for, I think for me personally, it was... I don't regret going at a young age. And I think I, going back and giving advice to anyone, I would tell them not to wait either. I would, I would say that delaying it or, or for that reason that you're not ready is, is, not, is not to me a justification because the experience itself, you're never ready. I'll be honest. You can be, mm. you can plan to go when you're 20 or 30 or 40 when you're in a spiritual place or religious place, or, but you'll never be ready because that's the essence of Hajj. I think that yeah, in my article, I referred to it as a very personal experience, almost like death. You know, you, only you are going to experience that. And now, I, just before this before this podcast, I was actually thinking about it. With death comes resurrection, right? So it is a form of resurrection. When you go there with your sins and your baggage and your disconnect from the divine and the sacred, you're able to rejuvenate that. So why, in my mind, it's, it's beneficial to go at an early age because why would anyone want to delay that, you know? And you can always build on, on it later and that doesn't mean to say that you're perfect when you come back either it's still a it's still a challenge in itself but yeah I mean just to answer your question I, I think that going at a young age there is it's, it's highly recommended it's very beneficial obviously if you have the means and you can afford to go you can take the time off a lot of people are obviously studying etc but if you can yeah by all means I think um, it's, yeah. it's a blessing and uh, you, you never really have the choice you know you're invited you know like there are yeah. three million people right now out of a billion Muslims. So, you know, it's, it's a privilege and an honor. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that as well. And I think, um, like Salim was saying, like you're never ready for an opportunity like that. But by going there and by performing those rites and by being there, it makes you ready for the rest of your life, I guess. Um, and it is like, it creates a foundation for the rest of your life as well. Um, and I remember even me, I, I hadn't, I had just like finished uh, uh, I was late in giving my degree in, uh, my dissertation in. So my life was all over the place. I didn't have a job. I didn't have uh, really anything sorted out. And it's really daunted, daunting to think about doing something like Hajj. But when you go, everything just kind of falls into place as well. Um, and I think when you make the intention, then it becomes the right moment. Um, but you can't ever wait for that right moment, if that makes sense. No, that that does make sense. Um, so, you know, I've already mentioned how Salim felt that his Hajj was a life-changing experience. Maria, I just wondered if you, you felt that way about your Hajj also. And if you don't, how did you come to terms with that? I think, yeah, it definitely is. And that's kind of like the prominent narrative around it. But however, I feel like a big part of it, I feel like some people take it for granted that Hajj will just happen to you. And when you come back, your life will be changed. However, that's re- that's kind of not the case in a way that like Hajj sets you up to make changes in your life and to have a life changing experience, if that makes sense. But you have to put the effort in. Um, and it's like the it's like the Hadith where um, where it said that if you take one step towards uh, God, God will come running towards you. So really, you have to put the effort in for it for Hajj to become that life changing experience that everyone talks about. So going back to the Insta story we did, so one person who kind of had a different view to Salim, um, they said 
I agree, but I think sometimes when we hear about experiences like this, i.e., um, you know, like life-changing experiences, we all accept, expect the same thing and get disheartened if our experience doesn't match. I went for Hajj in mm-hmm. 2008, and while I loved the experience, somehow my awakening came a few months later. While we were on the trip, I kept worrying that I wasn't doing something right because I didn't have a big emotional moment while we were there. But I think Allah puts it in your heart when you're ready to accept the message. Um, so that I've always been kind of interested in this just because I feel like I'm one of those people who I find it hard to be be present and be in the moment. And I always think that, oh, you know, what will I do if my hajj is very underwhelming? Like it, would that be a sign of it not being accepted kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think that's a, that's, that's a perfect point. And I think that is the myth and the uh, perception that everybody has that they have this idyllic um, romanticism around it that it will be the perfect thing now uh, i'm not saying that uh, um, it, it, it isn't let's just be honest i mean the expectation will never match up to the reality um, i mean for example you, you know you take the act of tawaf i said it in my article that you look it's a very spiritual act you know in your mind you're going to be having a very deep spiritual experience you're you know you're obviously in close proximity to the divine um you're, you know you're going to be walking around it'll be very easy it'll be a seamless experience but that's you know in a graceful way but that's not the reality especially when you go for hajj because you know uh, there's people there's a lot of people there's a lot of pushing there's a lot of shoving there's elbows flying left right center mm-hmm. there's you know back in the day when i went there were umbrellas i don't know if they have that now but people had umbrellas and you'd, you'd get hit by those so and 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 also not everyone is observing that same level of etiquette um you know there are people that are very highly charged and emotional so dawaf was really draining for me personally actually it was very exhausting and the hardest part was to maintain that patience and not to get angry because you'll get yeah. 101 reasons throughout the three days of march to get very very angry you'll see things that are good and you see things that are bad so you know it, it, you know we have to manage that expectation and i think that that's not a bad thing no one should be disappointed like you said zara that if you're not mindful um it shouldn't depress you in fact it should be something that you you work hard on while you're there because it's like life life is not perfect you know it never goes to plan and i think and i think the real trick is to find that serenity and that tranquility in their chaos that's the true test of spirituality so for me uh, whilst afterwards did the the tawaf which was very hard Afterwards, I would just sit and just watch everybody else doing it. And that's where I find that that it resonates more, you know, because you're not in the thick thin of it. You're observing now. So I, that's when you do that reflection and you're thicker and, you yeah. know. So I, I don't want to put anyone off by, by um, you know, and the article wasn't intended to give that sense of um, romanticism so that if someone goes and they suddenly feel, oh, I'm not feeling like that it's not like that it is yeah, challenging and i yeah and so i think that that that's definitely a valid point so what i'll do is put a link for this um insta story saved in our highlights but i'll put it in the show notes too so people can go and read the responses but it was really interesting because the responses were divided divided mainly into two camps so i'll just read one short response someone said hodge felt like going home i felt inner contentment for the first time and outward belonging like no other and then another response, which is the other camp, I worry my Ibadah was insufficient for my Hajj. I was going with the flow and it didn't feel like enough. 
Um, so yeah, the responses were all kind of divided into those two categories, which I thought was really interesting. But at the same time, like you said, Salim, it doesn't mean that, you know, like your Hodge isn't accepted per se. It's just that we all experience it differently, I guess. Um, yeah, I just wanted to go back to um, what Salim was saying as well. I think in many sense, I agree with him. But in another sense, I kind of disagree as well, because um, I think like when you're actually doing to off as well, like the the kind of worship is the kind of like spirituality and connection is in the act of worship itself, despite its hardness. Um, because like Dwarf really is the ultimate form of submission. I think Hajj in itself is because if you try and rationalize the actions that you do while on Hajj, while on Umrah, if you try and rationalize doing the Tawaf or going um, going to do the Safa and Marwa, you'll never be able to rationalize it and ex- to explain it with logic. Um, really, what it is, it's an ultimate act of submission because you are going um, in that direction seven times around the Kaaba because you are showing your devotion to Allah. Um, so I think even if the surrounding isn't as glamorous as we always make it out to be, it is that act in itself. Um, and I think, like, Zara, when you were saying that you, you prob- you're you scared that you'd probably just be overthinking things, I think in some ways, because it's so busy and because you're so immersed into what's going on, you don't have time to kind of overthink, mm. um, unless it's, like, sort of downtimes as well. But even, like, in Muzdalifah and Arafah, like, it's just, it's just continuously... It, it is effort upon you, but because of that, because it breaks you down to who you really are, you yeah, I don't I don't feel like you have time to kind of worry about that. You're just in the moment and doing the best you can. Oh, I like that. That's nice to hear. So I think one one experience so I've not had the privilege um, to do Hajj, but I've done Umrah a few times, been blessed to do that. And and each time I go, I always notice um, the first time I went was two thousand and three and and the second time was just last year in 2018. And I realized the rise of photography, you know, and how phones and are used to document. And, and Maria, you can maybe talk about this being a filmmaker, how you view things. But for me, it really, I guess there's two sides to it. And, and in today's world, we can't help but take photos. And this interrupts, in my experience, the pilgrimage, the experience, you know, the, the serenity that you want when you're away from the world. And... So just just on a topic, I guess I was researching how we came to know about the history of Makkah and Medina, and what changes it have changes it's been through. And and I guess if you look at it, there's benefits to it because the earliest um, the earliest archives we have of um, the, the photos from Makkah and Medina were taken around. I guess I think the camera was invented around 1839, and I think it was, so when the Ottomans were ruling the Hejaz region. And Makkah and Medina, the very first album that we have is called the Yildiz albums. And these go from, I think, 1871, which is the very earliest, um, the very first time we documented the way Makkah and Medina were. And so throughout that time, and then I guess the most famous photographer that we have now from the Ottoman period is is uh, is one of my favorites. His name is uh, Fahruddin Pasha, and he's also known as the um, I think the Lion of Medina or the Tiger of Medina. His names are vary because he's he was the Ottoman um, general in charge of Medina when when uh, um, when the First World War was lost and the Ottomans ordered Medina to be surrendered to the British. And this this one general refused for a month. So he you know he had access to, to camera technology and he just documented so much 
of what life used to be like in those two cities and the legacy of the Ottomans, which if you didn't have cameras, you would just be relying on just words, which is what we've done until now, looking at medieval Islamic travelers and how life used to be. But I think, and, and you know, so this, if anybody wants to find this, we can put a link in the in the podcast. I think there's about 40,000 photos and the Ottomans sent photos of Makkah, Medina and, and the entire empire all over the world for people to see what the Muslim world was like. So if you go back today, you can see just how much has changed in the Masjid al-Haram and Masjid al-Nabi and, and the expansion that's taken place. But if you look at photography today, and I guess I'll open this up to Maria's, is what's been your experience like? Because you actively take photos. I remember when I went to do Umrah, I took a lot of photos, but I, I was very careful in how I did it because for me, it wasn't about documenting history the way Fahadin Pasha did maybe, but it's really about a sharing with people who don't have the opportunity or the privilege or who just miss, you know, Medina. And there's something about places like Medina that your heart just yearns for it. So when I took photos and I share them on my Instagram, I had so many people just say, can you read the waf for me? Or my heart misses what I see. So there's a, there's a spiritual connection which you can make with photography, but you can also ruin it. Um, so up to you, Maria. What, what, what do you feel like? Because I followed your recent trip and um, I thought it was beautiful. I think for me, the experience is probably slightly different to most people because obviously photography and videography is my profession um, and it's my passion as well. So often now people will come come to me and ask me, should I take my camera on, uh, to Umrah to Hajj or should I not? Um, and I tell them if if you have to, if you have that choice, and if you have to ask that question to yourself, always leave it at home. Whereas for me, it wasn't really... Uh, a question of taking it or not it was always part of who I am so yeah like Ali like you said like you do have to be careful at times as well because um, normally when I would take pictures I'd take it at times where nothing is going on so say for example the hour before Maghrib um, just wandering around the courtyards of Medina or um, after Fajr time in Mecca um, like capturing people doing tawaf or uh, worshipping and I'd edit the pictures um like when everyone is sleeping, basically. So it wouldn't really cut into my worship time. However, there were times where I had to pull back and be like, Maria, you know, stop taking too many pictures or um, leave some time for the more important things. Um, so it is about kind of gaining that balance. Um, but like you said, like the the people who come back to me and tell tell me that like it's, it's made them feel some sort of way and it's, these pictures have made them cry. Like, and I've had people who have said that they, they're not Muslim, but when they're looking at the pictures, they've really felt something in their heart. Um, so for me, it was really a way of alleviating my experience and my worship. And that's just from my personal uh, experience because I couldn't not capture it. But you know, your photos in particular were just so beautiful. Um, and obviously there's thousands and thousands of photos available now, like, you know, there's no shortage of kind of images of the Hajj. Um, but I don't know, I've not seen Hajj pictures that kind of affected me in the way that yours did, especially the ones of the day of Arafat when you've got people kind of making dua. And I mean, I can't really even put into words what's different about them, but you just, you really captured the kind of emotion. Thank you so much. Day. Yeah, I think one thing, because uh, I mean, I know lots of, I did get a lot of criticism from people as well, telling me to put my camera away and to focus on Ibadah. Um, but I think one thing that I was really lucky with and blessed with, Alhamdulillah, my Sheikh, he kind of appreciated what I was doing as well. 
And uh, he would encourage us on the day of Arafah, because it's such a heavy day, he would tell us, you know, take a break, wander around, look at the desperation of other people as well, and allow it to inspire yourself. And then you could go back to making dua and um, worshipping on that day as well. Um, so I think, and I think that's, those are the moments that really make up Hajj. Like, it's a small moment. It's like the people in the crowd as well. I think... Um, I mean, I remember it might be going a little bit off topic, but I remember like sharing oranges and it's such a weird thing to say. But every time we had the orange, we'd share it with everyone else around us. Um, and these kind of little moments, I feel like are the type of things that I try to capture. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a beautiful way of describing it, because I think one is one is what do you share with people and what's the purpose of it? And I think. A lot of people share, share photos um, without thinking about it because we live in the age of technology and, and sharing is sharing is common. But I think the other aspect of sharing with non-Muslims at that point is really resonated with me because um, I do have a lot of friends who are non-Muslim and they follow me and they talk about this with me. And the experience I find that is just it just moves you. You don't have to be a Muslim, right? Just just when you follow um, the Hajj pilgrimage on CNN or the BBC. I am always curious what people think because there's something about people circling the Kaaba in that number. And, and you know, it's just that harmony and that peace you kind of bring across with photography too. So I think that's a very interesting way of thinking about photography. But today, obviously, phone cameras are different and we take them everywhere. But so so I guess in summary, with the photography aspect of it, I think it's 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 interesting because we, we use it once, once to just... I think share with the world what we had, what the Ottomans did, and today now we're doing it for much more personal reasons. And 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 with the rise of Islam across the world, I think it's unavoidable that we 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 take responsibility for how we capture and how we share the the sacredness of the spaces. Um, so, for example, one rule that I had was when I was in Medina that I would not take photos um, of the prophets, um, uh, his 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 tomb, just around that area. Just because I felt like there's, there's some things you should just enjoy um, with the, with the peace that comes with it, but each to their own. Um, but as an, I think it's an interesting conversation to have anyway. You should reflect on if you were to do Hajj or Umrah, how should you approach it? And I think putting the phone away could be a good idea. Hmm. Yeah, I think just Ali. Um, sorry, I think it's important if you do take your phone and if you do want to take pictures to put boundaries in place, like you said. Like for me, even though there were pictures of uh, people doing tawaf and those moments within tawaf I never actually took it I never actually took my camera out while I was doing tawaf myself um, so it's kind of keeping things sacred that are meant to be sacred yeah absolutely yeah I think I think that's that's a good way of doing it yeah so spend a lot of time in the masjid when you've done your prayers you've done your tawaf you've done your umrah your hajj I think I think there's nothing wrong with just observing people and and uh, and taking photos it could be it could be a good way to share your experience in this day and age like social media and like taking pictures and having our phone has become a way especially for younger generation to uh, absorb the way around or absorb the world around them um and really make sense of things as well so i think it would be injustice as well to kind of just cut it out completely without understanding where people are coming from when they take the pictures so we did a poll on Instagram asking people whether you should be taking pictures during Hajj. And the results actually kind of surprised me because only 32% said yes, 68% said no. But I have a feeling that that most people are probably referring to like, um, you know, like selfies during Dwarf, things like that, I would say, rather than um, 
rather than the things like Maria's mentioned. And also, I just wanted to say, you know, so Ali, you've spoken about obviously the very first time um, photos were taken of the Kaaba and of Hajj and all the rest of it. But um, I remember back at university, I remember one of our lecturer telling us about the very first time the the area, the Kaaba and the um, Haram al-Sharif were depicted in artwork anywhere. And the earliest example they have is of a tombstone. I think it was the ninth century, but don't quote me on that. I think it was the ninth century in Iraq. And it's literally just a bird's eye view, a very, very simple engraving of the Kaaba in the middle, and then the buildings that existed at that time kind of around it. And the, I remember that kind of, it like sparked off a discussion about how, why like, um, you know, people were making such a great engravings. And at that time it was because the vast majority of Muslims would never have the opportunity to see that. And it was just a way of being able to show them what it's like. And so obviously from that, you have all these beautiful um, other pieces of artwork, all this tile, tile work depicting the Kaaba and also um, Prophet Salaam's Masjid in Medina. Um, but the sad thing is that tombstone, they don't know the whereabouts of it anymore because of the Iraq war. Um, when the museum was looted, that kind of disappeared along with a lot of other things, sadly. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting story, isn't it? How because you're right because until so until 1876 when um, when these Julie's albums these were, these were put together, you had travelers like Richard Burton, you know, British travelers and others who came in and they would just draw. So there were there were drawings of the of the Kaaba, the Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabi, but never photos. And those drawings existed. And there's so many examples, rich examples of Ottoman artwork. And, and and you know one good example is most people have it in their house. If you look at your prayer mat, you know you see typically you see Masjid Nabi or Masjid Haram in front of you, and this is and and you know these depictions go back to you know two dimensional views of 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 if you like of the grounds, and this is how the Ottomans I guess popularized it. But it, it goes way back. You're right into the Abbasids, into the Mamluk era. It probably goes back even earlier than that. Uh, Salim, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, you guys are lucky, actually, Maria, um, in terms of you were able to take photos. Because in, when I went in 2005, all those years ago, um, they actually didn't allow it. Um, in fact, I, I had taken my camera. Uh, I didn't I didn't take any photos. But I think on the last day, I just wanted to get a visual image of, of the Kaaba just you know, as a memory. Uh, to show my family and I tried to pull my camera out and literally one of the kind of guards in the harem spotted me and literally just ran after me and I didn't know what to do so I literally I just just turned the other way and and ran so it's it's quite interesting (laughs) that yeah so it's quite interesting that you know and if I'm sure if it stopped me probably would have taken my camera and kept it but it's interesting that that's evolved now and that you were afforded that opportunity to to take those pictures and I think definitely in terms of the um um, the image given to the outside world it's it's really really important that more pr needs to be done definitely about the the act you know for example three million people imagine are going to ascend on on makkah in this three days and they'll all be doing the same rituals at the same time and like ali like you said that the, the coverage is not there um in in the right uh, in the right way so i think the things you're doing and the work you've done is excellent but i think it's still a relative thing like each individual for them personally, like I know, for example, some people that would be adamant and say, no, I'm not going to take pictures. Or for me, it's a very, you know, and for me, for example, it's a very personal uh, thing about reflection and, and doing, being isolated. I think when I go for pilgrimage, whether it be anywhere you know, for Ziyarat or for Hajj or Umrah, it's about uh, disconnecting 
from the world. Um, so mm-hmm. for me, it's um, that seclusion. But I guess for you, it's a very different thing because it's a, like you said, it's a part and parcel of what you do. But for me, it's about, um, you know, just finding a quiet time where I can just focus and concentrate and be away from social media. But like like I said, it's, it's very relative and it's individual and it's based on everyone's intentions. So Yeah, it's funny you say that, um, Salim, because actually I don't think you were you're still not allowed to take your cameras in um, because I did get a few comments as well towards the end of my uh, Umrah trip uh, this year actually in Ramadan uh, taking my camera so I still don't think it's allowed but I feel like because I'm a woman as well and I kind of keep it on down low maybe people overlook me and I try to keep it quite subtle as well I'm not I'm not sure whether I should be admit, admitting that I took pictures without um, kind of permission but uh, there you go so moving on slightly, so I recently wrote a post on Instagram. So I've not I've not actually been on Hajj yet, but one of the things I've always wanted to do is go on Hajj via any method other than a plane. And I kind of wrote my reasons in that post. I, I was just explaining about how in the past, you know, we have all these, we have loads and loads of accounts by pilgrims talking about their journey to Hajj. And it was always a journey that began months and months before the Hajj, because obviously at that time there were no planes and it took, it took that long just to get there. Obviously for them, life was a lot more difficult. There were, there was a lot more hardship kind of on the way that, that people, um, often got ill many pilgrims didn't even make it obviously I'm not kind of advocating for that like we live in a time where alhamdulillah we don't we don't have those problems but I do think it's a little sad that we don't have the same kind of preparation for Hajj that they did because those long journeys often served as that preparation and getting themselves into the right mindset whereas today we kind of we're able to reach Mecca in a couple of hours and I don't feel like it's the same thing anymore. But the responses to that post were quite interesting because someone did rightly point out that this is such, I'm looking at it, I'm coming at it from a place of privilege. It's not really something you should be moaning about because it is a blessing at the end of the day. But I was just curious what your, everybody else's opinions were on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm on the, I think I'm, I'm with you on this one because I think I'm, on the same page because I'm planning inshallah to do Hajj next year um, and my plan is and we can do a much deeper discussion another time is by land and so, so start from London and inshallah go all the way into uh, into the Hijaz and by land and by ship if I need to because I agree with you I think so if you look at the way Hajj was done you would you would pay all your debts you would make sure your responsibilities were taken care of because I think Two reasons. One is you're going to see Allah, and you're going almost as if this is this is this is the end. This is the end. You have to go with no burden. And the also the other thing was you did not know if you would come back. People would not survive those journeys. Mm-hmm. If you went by ship, if you went by camels, if you went by whatever, people were either um, um, robbed or or you know. This was very common, and we'll come to this in a second. Is how that route was developed over the different different Islamic empires, because Hajj was a very diff- difficult time. So I'm of the opinion. If you can, if you if you can do, add a little bit of hardship to the Hajj, I think you can do it without putting your safety into jeopardy. Always be safe, of course. But I think a seven-hour flight from London to to Jeddah doesn't really give you much time to reflect, especially when you have onboard entertainment. Um, so I think if there's a way to mix it without going to the other extreme side, I would be all up for it. And I think it's an interesting challenge that I think as Muslims we should think about is how do you bring back that reflection and that journey to Hajj without, if you like, going back to the days of the camel. 
I think I, I would definitely agree with both of you, actually, within that point um, and the preparation. And I think with that, you see a rise of um, more kind of people, groups traveling on bikes um, and cycling to Hajj as well. I think we have kind of supplemented that long journey by going there and going there a bit early and preparing over there, I guess. Um, and in many ways, for people who have been stuck in this uh, dunya and, you know, we've just been so focused on working and, you know, school and everything, being in Makkah and Medina itself and preparing over there is um, more kind of enlightening, I guess, as well. So I guess that's kind of how we've supplemented it. Um, but I definitely agree with the point where, you know, if you can add a little bit more hardship, it will make that kind of reward sweeter as well. I think that's actually a really good point. We were talking earlier off air about, um, you know, people who choose to go to Medina first because it's kind of a way to just um, sit and reflect and kind of prepare for your Hajj. So that that's true as well. I guess that is kind of the um, modern way, I guess, of supplementing that journey. Um, Salim, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, arriving in Medina, for example, um, is, is, a, is a perfect way of... of um, introducing yourself into that environment into that religious atmosphere into those sacred spaces before you then go on to, to perform your hajj rites and you know just visiting rasulullah you know that um that uh, connection and spirituality you know it's it's a really inspiring place and you know you're overwhelmed with with all your senses and you know this is the, the man who brought us that religion so i think preparation i think what you guys are alluding to in terms of the journey the key thing that I'm taking away is that it's all about the the, the planning and the um, preparation. And I think that is absolutely key. And that's what I tried to touch on in the article is that I think we just don't do it enough. And even if we don't have the opportunity to take 20 days off prior to Hajj and we are stuck at work, we really need to make or people, I think, need to make an effort to to try and at least read or, you know, speak to people that have been. Because, you know, it's quite interesting. Everyone always comes back with some form of regret in the sense that oh we could have done this a bit different we could have done this a bit different and and not a regret in the sense that in a negative way but more in terms of how they would have enhanced their hajj experience so they'll give you a real gem of a tip and say look do this for example and i if i wish i'd done more of it for example like I, for example i wish i just sat more and reflected and contemplated as opposed to just worrying about the ritual so uh, i definitely agree with you i think if you can take that time and you can afford to take that time, oh, absolutely, it's it's perfect. Um, you know, your point about reading as much as you can. So I know I've spoken about this on previous podcasts, so I apologize if I'm boring anybody. But I really love reading Hajj accounts from the past because there are just so many of them and people have written about their Hajj in so many different eras and they're people of all different classes, all different ethnicities. So you really get like a very wide range of um, experiences but one of the things I love about them is that you get these really kind of incredible historical details through them so you learn about the time of the pilgrim through their pilgrim account as well so there's one in particular I just wanted to read a short quote out there was a pilgrim called Harry St John Philby he was a former British civil servant what he did was he he ended up moving to Arabia and he was responsible for kind of charting a lot of the territory, which at that time had not been mapped. But he was he worked for King Ibn Saud. He was a very close friend of his as well. So obviously his hajj was definitely one of privilege because he was able to travel with the king and all the rest of it. And um, obviously he was a convert. I forgot to mention that bit. But one thing I find really interesting, he said... 
This was in 1931. Motor cars were tending to become an increasing element in the pilgrimage scene. At the time of which I write, the privilege of using them was still confined to the royal family and officials on duty, but in 1933 permission was granted to a wider circle, while in the following year all restrictions were removed and the number of motor vehicles taking part in the ceremony was not less than 400. Since then the number has steadily increased and foreign pilgrims who can afford the luxury have now little to complain about in the matter of comfort. And I just, I love that quote so much because in that period, that was considered luxury, you know, because obviously people would have been walking or going on camel or whatever else. And it, it was during, it was in the following years that the very first journey, I think, um, from Mecca to Arafat was made by car. But it kind of, it kind of brings us to the next thing I was going to ask you about, this idea of a luxury hajj versus a quote unquote normal hajj. Because obviously in that time, like I said, a car was considered luxury, whereas now that's like, the bare minimum. And so I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Like in our time, firstly, what is considered luxury? And secondly, is there anything wrong with having a quote unquote luxury hud? I think, yeah, luxury, the term is definitely relative. I think when you go to Mecca and Medina, often you pay for the luxury hotels, not because of the luxury and the food and um, how many stars it has, but more because of the location to um, the mosque on either side and I think that's just kind of the nature and the demographic of that area as well where closer to the mosque and having that privilege of being closer means that you pay for the kind of luxury hotels in a way um but I think the package that I went to I guess yeah in some ways it was luxury but in some way in other ways because we went with a sheikh as well like he's been quite a few times and he recognized the fact that hajj is about hardship and hajj is about uh, um, shouting and bloodshed and that's kind of a quote from somewhere um, and the more harder it is the more kind of reward that you get as well and you think about Hajj like it really bring, breaks you down to who you really are and then builds you back up and the more kind of struggle that you have during that um, and the less kind of luxury that you have I think the kind of more the better um, outcome and better um, result that you'd get if that makes sense. Uh, Salim what about you? Um, it's an interesting topic. Um, so my Hajj uh, package, so to speak, I guess, it was was it wasn't kind of high end. It wasn't like extremely high end, and it wasn't really basic. It was kind of in the middle. Um, but I have I know people that do go on the kind of five star Hajjs, and I know other people who do go the opposite extreme and and kind of slum it, and both have very different views. And I think. I think this notion that we have of of it has to be hard. I I'm personally don't understand. Like, f- because in this day and age, nothing is hard. Nothing about the Hajj physically, logistically is hard. That's always taken care of. You know, you're very comfortable. Um, you know, for example, even in Arafah, there were AC um, kind of tents. Um, some people had kind of very basic tents, but then there were also other tents where you have like AC inside. So I don't think it has to be physically hard for you to say that oh it was more rewarding or or more accepted or anything i think it's again it comes back to for me it's the spiritual struggle so even though you're comfortable that doesn't necessarily mean that um you're not going to have your own challenges you know like like i said that repression of the anger keeping patient three days not having a shower toilets facilities not being amazing a um, lot of people hot weather those are the hardships that you will still go, everyone will still endure, whether you're a millionaire or a pauper. So 
it's it's whether those attributes inside you, like your jealousy or your anger or your uh, um, selfishness, those are the things that will challenge you. And that's where the hardship will come. And if you are kind of sincere and true to what you're supposed to be doing, your the aim is to reflect on that that trait and try and suppress that. So, so for me, when it, when we talk about you know whether whether the hardship, it, to me, it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work because it's it's to be honest, it's the house of God, right? If you think of it that way, you're 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 lucky you've been there, you're privileged to have gone there, and you know you really want to be there. You're here, you're the closest connection to your divine. Um, you know, it's obviously a sacred act. We're following the footsteps of Prophet Ibrahim. Why would we not crave to go there? And if we crave to go there, why would we not want to wear the best of clothes and have the whitest of ihram and 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 perfume ourselves and be happy and joyous? And and if you have that, then then that's good, right? So whether you're, you know, you have a nice room or a nice bed to sleep on, I don't think that should make you feel guilty. I think sometimes as Muslims as well, we're very, um, you know, we we try to always make it hard on ourselves. Well, Muslim, well, Islam is not supposed to be difficult. Like we always feel that if we're too happy, we should be lamenting. And if we're lamenting, you know, it's, we can never, you know, it's almost that balance. You know, it's never there. We're always commemorating, but we're never celebrating. Imagine those three million people, how lucky they are to be there. You know, they should be celebrating deep down. Like they've been invited. They've been privileged. You know, people will go on a plane and maybe the plane will come back or people will have the money and their visa will get rejected. So it's a real privilege to be there. You know, your Lord has invited you. He's deemed you worthy. Even though we're not worthy, he's deemed you to be worthy. And then he's saying, come and I'm going to reward you and give you eternal blessings. And I want to help you reform yourself. Uh, uh, and as Maria said, he'll, you know, he's running towards us, um, uh, metaphorically, obviously. So I think that we need to be, we don't need to be so hard on ourselves. And I don't yeah. think people that go, if they have the means, look, if they've done well and they have the means and they're going on those five-star hotels, I don't think they should feel guilty. And I think similarly, the person who wants to have that sense of trial and tribulation, that's commendable as well. I mean, for him, it's a very different um, motivation and a different um, agenda. And I guess for the for the other person, it's it's very different. So, like I said, it's a very personal journey, and yeah. no no one's experience is going to be the same. Everybody will have a unique experience, a unique connection, and what they want from it. I think it's interesting because this idea of luxury, like when you read these accounts of programs of the past, you realize that this idea of luxury has always existed. It's just our perceptions of what's considered a luxury have changed. Um, but then I suppose the one constant here is that the rights of the Hajj have not changed and they're, they're exactly the same. And I suppose they're still as taxing and where things may have got slightly easier in terms of facilities, um, perhaps Mm -hmm. the number, the sheer number of pilgrims, that's kind of Mm -hmm. increased hardship from in a different way, I suppose. So just to add to that as well, Salim, what you were saying, I think, yeah, it doesn't matter what sort of level that you go into when you're actually doing the rites of Hajj itself. Like everyone is on the plains of Arafah. Everyone's sleeping under the stars in Muzdalifah, you know. Everyone's on an equal footing exactly. during the actual True. rites of Hajj. Um, so, yeah, so I think that hardship is kind of warranted regardless of what kind of uh, level of luxury you go into because simply by performing performing the acts of Hajj. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think for me, it's um, the, the interesting point is not so much the luxury or not luxury, but more the commercial aspect of it. For me, that's a worry. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, for me, when you look at Hajj, you can see that it's becoming very commercialized. And I think that's very 
different to, to what we were just discussing. Like you look around and you see malls and you see Debenhams and you see Starbucks. That's a very interesting debate. Like, is that warranted? Does that go against um, the essence of what Hajj is? Because at the end of the day, it's still a very sacred place. And we're going there with a very specific purpose to, to, re- to that connection, to restore that connection with your creator, to become a better person, to reform, etc. So does it, do, do those things detract from that? I mean, that, that would be interesting to get your views on. I think, um, I've, I've, so I'm, I've been reading the travels of Ibn Jabir and he's talking, so I guess he lived about a thousand years ago and he's talking about something like this. And I think it's interesting to draw parallels. He's talking about the time where, uh, when Safa and Marwa were not enclosed as part of the Masjid al-Haram, you know, it was outside. And he's talking about how there were stalls along the way so while you're running between Safa and Marwa, there are people selling food, there are people selling drinks, there are people selling other goods and merchandise. So this idea of being bombarded by commercialization has always been around, if you think about it, in Makkah especially, because it was, it was a center of trade and people from all over the world would come bringing things to sell. And because it was exempt from taxes, and it's been like this since well, for a long time, it encouraged people to bring trade. And the trading happened in, if you like, but as part of the highest part of the Umrah. And I guess now you replaced those smaller stalls and um, street vendors with Starbucks and Debenhams and Burger King. And, and But I guess the scale the scale is completely different, right? But the idea, I think, is is you, you if, you're, if you're focused and you're looking at it from that perspective, um, there's always things to pull you away and say, maybe I should go have a nice coffee or maybe I should take a break. Um, but I thought that was an interesting reflection if you compare how things were and how they are now. It hasn't changed in, in, in essence, but I guess the, the size has definitely changed. Before we move on to our final discussion point, there's just one more quote I wanted to read out. Um, and this is more just to kind of encourage people to read these accounts just because of what they can tell us about the historical period people were living in. Um, so this accounts by Lady Evelyn Cobbled. She was um, a Muslim convert and she was the first... British woman to go on Hajj. She went in 1933. Um, and so she's talking about Arabia, which by then was already Saudi Arabia. Um, she says, the Hejaz has lived on its pilgrims for centuries, but now the pilgrims become fewer each year. Once they number 200,000 or more, but lately, owing to our depression, they are scarcely 100,000 and Arabia suffers. When in Jiddah, I heard of possible oil developments. American and English were both endeavouring to obtain concessions. So like, that's obviously, that's just before the period we're living in now. Um, And I just thought it's just, it's kind of, it's almost comical when you read that now because of what she's kind of foreboding and what ends up happening. But yeah, so like I said, these accounts are really interesting, especially um, if you want to read about what Hajj was like before this modern period. So before like the malls and everything that we've we've spoken about um, and before transport changed as well, I, I re- highly recommend it. And I'll put some links in our show notes as well. So just before we finish off, uh, Marianne Salim, if you were asked to give somebody one piece of advice about Hajj, what would it be? Yeah, sure. Um, I think... So I'm going to say an advice that I got from someone else who had been to Hajj. Um, And they had basically said, surrender yourself fully to God while you're there. And I think that's probably the best piece of advice that I can give. I think as much preparation, as much kind of planning that you do, it comes down to you really being open to whatever happens there and really 
surrendering surrendering yourself at the end of the day because like by performing hajj it is the ultimate form of submission you know um so i think that that would probably be the best piece of advice that i could give you um simple but i think it really encompasses a whole experience um okay so i would probably say that um truly understand and appreciate where you are and what you're doing um understand that look it's it's a very deep spiritual connection between you and your lord and um try to look beyond just the physical rituals and think about the fact that there is always a spiritual dimension and for you to get a great understanding of that spiritual dimension i think it's really important to prepare uh, beforehand and when i mean prepare i mean read about hajj read about the philosophy of hajj just take uh, you know a day or two to just reflect on where you're going and and what you want to achieve i think that's really important yeah i think those are two really good pieces of advice i'd have to re-listen to this i think before i go on hajj <laughs> what um so you saying that what what do you feel like your um like ultimate kind of hope would be zara and ali if um when you inshallah get opportunity to do hajj in the future um for myself I mean, I hope to go, inshallah, in the next couple of years. So other than the going by land or not going by plane, I don't know how realistic that is for myself. Um, other than that, I think um, we were talking earlier about, the uh, about you know, taking photos on Hajj. And I think I would fall into the same category as Salim, as someone who needs to kind of switch off and, you know, not think about social media or anything like that. Because I feel like because of Sacred Footsteps, it's tempting to Instagram things. Um so yeah, for myself, I think it would be that. It would be just kind of forcing myself to switch off and kind of be present and be in the moment, um, which is something I know I would struggle with. What about you, Ali? Because you're planning, inshallah, on going next year. Yeah, I think I like what you said. I think so I was speaking to my to my mom about this yesterday, about Hajj, and she said something that stuck with me. And she said, when you're standing on Mount Arafat, it's, it's, it's the place we would gather, you know? The, it's, it's where we will be on the Day of Judgment. So I think to stand there, I think that's that's one of my hopes is to be in a place and, and really connect and understand what it is that we're doing in this world and what it is that's coming. So I think it's, it's hopefully have that refresh or that fear put into me more than it currently is about what we're all doing here and what the meaning of life is and, and what's coming. So I think Hajj for me would ideally be a, a life-changing experience where you think about death differently and I guess not in a negative way but I think to encourage me to be a better Muslim inshallah. It's it's funny you say that actually Ali just one last point because they say in Arafah it's when after Arafah it's like it's like the day that your mother gave birth to you so it is kind of a rebirth as such because all your sins are essentially wiped clean and it's as if you entered the earth for the first time. That's beautiful. I think that's a beautiful way to end this. Perfect place to end it. Thank you, Maria. And thank you, Salim. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing your experiences with us. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. All of the links can be found in our show notes. We're on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps.